Let's take God's word together and turn again to Exodus chapter 34. Let me give you some good news as you're turning there, some very encouraging news. Many of you know we've been praying about purchasing another tent. Really, we need to because this tent has to go back to uh, the property up in Droitwich for our summer camp. And we are, as you can see, just about running out of space. And um, we've been praying much about this, but I think everybody who owns a marquee in this part of the world has jacked the prices up so extremely high, knowing that everybody wants to use tents and marquees at this time. So it's been very difficult. In fact, the cheapest marquee that we have been able to find up up until recently uh, was 17,000 pounds. And so I said in passing in a meeting, we ought to begin praying about another marquee. A friend of mine who was watching the live stream in America rang me up while we were on holiday. Of course, I had no reception, which was a Wonderful, wonderful blessing. But he left a message and said, call me back as soon as you can. He said, someone was watching the live stream and they got in touch with me. He knew that I was your friend and they want to contribute $10,000 to a new marquee. And I mentioned that on Wednesday. And since Wednesday, another 7,000 pounds have come in. And this week we found a used marquee, about another two meters wider, the the exact same size, two meters wider. And he said, oh, by the way, I have another tent, two meters wider and about 25% longer. He said, I'll sell you both of them for the price that we have. Now that's far less. I said the cheapest marquee we could find was 17 grand, a used one. And with what God had given us this week, we have two marquees. We'll put the large one up here. We'll take this one back to Crown Hall, and we'll use the other one that's this side for gospel missions around the country. Already two churches around the country this week have asked if we would bring a tent up and have a gospel mission this summer. So buckle up and get ready. God willing, we'll uh, take the tent on the road. So pray about this. I was speaking with our friends in Carlisle, and they've asked us to bring the tent up there and have a gospel mission towards the end of the summer. All of these things are in the Lord's will. We'll leave them in his hands. And if he permit us, we will do that. But uh, very exciting, encouraging. I want you to pray about these things. Exodus chapter 34. We've been looking at the life of Moses for many weeks, many months now. And I never intended it to be like this. I'm not trying to be like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I never could be. But um, we have ended up for quite some time looking at this marvelous man, Moses. He's called the shepherd of the Old Testament, the pastor of the Old Testament. And uh, quite a pastor, quite a shepherd he was. He was just a glimpse of the great shepherd that was to come. Just a slight shadow of the great shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was to come. We come to this very interesting portion of God's word at the end of chapter 34, when Moses comes back down off of the mountain the second time with God's law. And this is the second time he spent this amount of time in God's presence. Think about this, 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. No food, no drink, and I imagine no sleep. You say, that's impossible. You're right, it is, unless God be there. And then nothing is impossible if God be a part of it. What is impossible with man is more than possible with God. 
Forty days and forty nights, Moses returns down off of the mountain with the tables of God's word, his commandments in his hand, two tables we find in verse 29. And three times in this portion of scripture, we read a very interesting expression. Verse 29, verse 30, and verse 35. In verse 29, the Bible says, Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone. Verse 30, behold, the skin of his face shone. In verse 35, the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. I've marked that expression three times. The skin of his face shone. This is a most remarkable event. There's nothing quite like it in all the scripture, apart from when Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus is there, not only is his face shining, but all of Jesus is shining. Just a little glimpse that Christ is far greater than Moses. Hebrews tells us about this. But nothing like this in the rest of all of Scripture, nothing quite like this. And it's so important that the Spirit of God places a threefold emphasis on this truth, on this event, that the face of Moses would shine. It is the great evidence, the greatest evidence that Moses had indeed been in the presence of God. That it was the Almighty whom he had been visiting for 40 days. I don't know about you, but sometimes I visit with somebody and instead of my face shining, I have a cloud over my face. Ever been there before? And you thought, oh, that was an oppressive meeting. All the life has been zapped out of me. But never can you say that when you enter into the presence of God. No, because in the presence of God, you find something that cannot be found anywhere else. Now, I want you to think practically with me. 40 days and 40 nights with no food and no drink and probably no sleep, although it doesn't say it. He should have been dead, not shining. And if for some strange reason he had made it through 40 days and 40 nights with no food and no drink, He should have looked like a skeleton. He should have looked absolutely appalling. He should have looked like something we see in a National Geographic magazine of some poor country. The Bible says his face was shining so brightly that people were afraid to even look at him. Think about that. Now, I wonder this morning, before we go any further, Have you ever been in the presence of God? I'm not saying like this. I doubt any of us have been in this particular situation. But have you ever been in the presence of God and you knew, you knew that you have met with God? Now, the interesting thing was when Moses came off of the mountain, although he knew he had been in the presence of God, he had no idea that his face was shining. That's interesting. Now, I think that is important for a couple of reasons. I think God probably allowed that to be so, so that pride would not get the best of Moses. He was known as being the most humble man in all the world. I can imagine if somebody came out of the presence of God shining, he would love to express that. He would love to show everybody how shining he was. But Moses didn't even know. Such humility, such recognition of the glory of God and the sinful brokenness of man that he didn't even realize it. They didn't, they were so afraid of that light that they they were afraid to come near to him, the scriptures say. 
He delivers to them the commandment. That's what the Bible says in verse 32. He gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And he had to put a veil on his face. Now, this is a very interesting thought. Now, there's a twofold reasoning behind this, this veil. Some would say he had to put a veil or a covering on his face because it was frightening people or people couldn't look at it. And perhaps there's some measure of truth in that. But Paul gives us a little bit more of an understanding as to the purpose and meaning of this veil in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to turn there with me, if you would, at this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What is the meaning of this shining, of this glory? What is the meaning of this veil? What is it? I wonder, as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, do you have that kind of a shine? Have you ever met somebody who has? Have you ever been with somebody and you knew, without them saying anything, without knowing where they've been, but you knew that person has been with God? You ever met somebody like that? I have, and it's made me want to be like that. It's made me want to be where they have been. Now, can I tell you that kind of a shine is simply a reflection of whom they have been with. It's nothing of themselves. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul makes it very clear. He begins the chapter describing about how he doesn't need to commend himself unto the people of Corinth because the, the fact that there are people who have been converted out of a wicked lifestyle is commendation enough. And he says in verse number 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And I can guarantee you that was the same conversation that Moses had when he came down off of the mountain. Look, he says, this is not about me. This shine is not about me. This shine came from him. This glow came from the uh, light of the world, you could say. And Paul recognized that in all of his work and in all of his success, as it were, spiritual, ministerial success, he understood that it was not of his self. It wasn't his sufficiency. It was God. I've underlined in my Bible, our sufficiency is of God. The second you and I begin to think we are something special is the second you begin to lose that shine. The second you begin to think it's you, the second you and I begin to look around and say, boy, look what we've done is the second the shine and the glory begins to diminish because our sufficiency is not of ourselves. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our church. It's not about a movement. It's not about a mission. It's about Jesus. Never lose sight of that. But look with me, please. Paul begins to explain in verse number six, speaking about the sufficiency of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather or more glorious? 
For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. We're going to stop for a moment there. I want to talk to you about the glory of what happened on that day. Can you imagine being there? Would you look this way? Can you imagine being there at the base of that mountain when Moses came down with such a brightness and such a a glorious shine that people were so afraid to come near and they turned their face away? How glorious as Moses came with those two tables of stone, the law for the second time, the law of God, the covenant being reinstated, you could say. It had been broken already the first time he came down off the mountain. Being recommissioned, uh, choose whatever word you want to use. Can you imagine? What a very special day that was. But Paul writes, and he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that as glorious as that day was, the day that we find ourselves right now is far more glorious. Far more glorious. Oh, I wish I could be there and see such wonderful things. No, my friend, you have seen greater. We have beheld greater. I'm not arrogant enough to think that a meeting like this is greater than that, but I'm talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Because everything we find in the Old Testament is simply a foreshadow of that which is to come. Well, what is a foreshadow, you say? Can can you imagine somebody walking in the middle of day, the bright sunshine behind them, walking towards you, and before they get to you, their shadow gets to you. And can I tell you, when you read the Old Testament, what you find is the shadow of the one who's coming. You read about Moses and you realize uh, uh, that shadow is not the substance of what is to come. It is only a, a shadow that real substance is coming. It's only a picture of what is to come. The law, a picture. Uh, the tabernacle, a picture. The feast, a picture. The real meat and substance of what was to come has already come. That's Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now, occasionally, occasionally somebody gets a bit confused and they think that they've got to turn back to the Old Testament law and the Old Testament way of feasts and system. And and let's go back to all those things. And, you know, all of the sacrificial system and all of the, uh, the observances of the, of the feasts and the, all of those things. Let's go back to that. But can I tell you, you could not make a worse mistake. Those things only were a shadow of what was to come, which was fulfilled in Jesus. Don't ever go back. And we find here a comparison between the old and the new. Two covenants, two compacts, you could say, two testaments given or served. The old, which was glorious, and the new, which was far more glorious. Look what it says in our text here. The Bible says in verse number six that God had made Paul and and those other ministers, able ministers of the New Testament. Moses was an able minister of the Old Testament. He says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Here's our first comparison. 
the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Moses came down off of the mountain with those two tablets, reinstating that covenant, that first covenant between God and his people. That was a covenant of the letter. Jesus comes in all of his glory. He instates with his own blood the new covenant. And it's a covenant of the spirit. One is a covenant of the letter. And Paul goes on to say the letter killeth. But the spirit giveth life. Can I tell you even the reading of the new covenant, the new testament, even preaching about Jesus, if it's only done in the letter, kills. You can talk about Jesus all you want to, but if the spirit of the living God is not a part of it, it is a deadening work. Ian Bounds once wrote, one of the greatest problems we have in the world today was that we have dead men preaching dead sermons to dead people. One of the biggest problems in Christianity, one of the greatest murderers of Christianity have been dead men preaching dead sermons to dead people. But what we have today isn't dead. We have the spirit of the living God, which can never be separated from the truth of God's word. It's a very dangerous thing to try to separate the two. You get all sorts of wacky things happening when you begin to go off in the name of the spirit away from the word. But the letter alone killeth. The letter killeth, the spirit giveth life. The Bible goes on in verse 7. If the ministration of death, meaning if the giving, already we're talking about the, the old law, the two tables of stone. If the giving, the ministration of death, that's what it's called. Now why did God tell Paul to write down that when Moses came off of the mountain with the two uh, tables of commandments, why did he say that was a ministration of death? I'll tell you why. Because the moment the law was given is the moment that people realized they were a failure. Did you know that? I told you before, but when I first moved to this country, I was trying to figure out all of the signs on the road. That's a challenge. What's the sign with a circle around it? A white sign with a red circle and a number in the middle. I could imagine it was a speed limit, but I didn't know if that was like a warning sign or, or that was the speed limit. And uh, in America, we're, we're kind of thick. And so they write it down speed limit and they put the number in the middle. So you have no excuse. Uh, but I can remember driving down the country road, back road when I first got to this country and seeing this lovely sign with a 50 in the middle and a, and a red circle around it. And I'm cruising along at about 60 or so of that. That's interesting. Maybe it's a curvy road. They're giving me some warnings. Just after that, all sorts of flashes and lights and all sorts of exciting things happening in front of me and behind me. I thought, there must be the paparazzis around here taking some <laughs> photographs. No, it was a speed camera. And along a few weeks later came a little lovely invitation to court or to pay a fine. Now, that sign, the moment I saw that sign, condemned me. It told me. I was breaking the law. Before that, I didn't know. I was going, going along at my own pace quite happily. And nobody can say what you want to. Somebody could say to me, hey, you're speeding. And I'd say, who are you to tell me I'm speeding? I'm going just fine. But the moment the law was posted, I had no excuse. 
And I know a lot of people today who think that they're just fine in the eyes of God. I'm not that bad of a person. Who do you think you are? I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned before. Who do you think you are? And so thus God gives us his law to show us we are indeed broken and in trouble. And so the law, that first covenant, that first administration of that law of the letter, Paul writes and says it was administration of death. Because we know the wages of sin is death. The penalty of breaking that law, just like the penalty of breaking the speed limit was a fine. The penalty of breaking God's law is death. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious. Did you know that? Here comes Moses off of the mountain and the people were amazed. Wow, look at this face shining. Marvelous. They didn't realize it was marvelous, but it also meant bad news for them. They always said, no problem, we're going to obey. You ever done that before? You ever got up and say, you know what, God, I'm going to be a good boy. I'm never going to sin again. Never going to do that again. You ever done that before? How's that worked out for you? It's administration of death. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with, that didn't last. Did you know that? Moses came off the mountain. That shining, that glory didn't last. And I don't know about you, but every once in a while, uh, you get a good streak going. Maybe you get a week or two going when you're living a pretty good life. You ever done that before? Oh, I've got victory over this sin. I'm doing really well. I'm really keeping the law. I'm really towing the line. I'm doing really well. And then you come crashing down and that glory didn't last very long because the glory of the law never lasts. Because you can't keep it. The law was given to show you how far we fall, how much we need God, how insufficient we are. Paul says our sufficiency is of God. But then he says this, if that was glorious, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? What is he talking about, the ministration of the Spirit? Christ Jesus came to this world to do what we could not do. He came and lived a perfect life, something you and I could never do. He died in our place on our behalf because we couldn't do it. He paid the penalty for our sin. Buried, rose again, defeating sin, defeating the penalty of sin, the consequence of sin. And he did that in such a way that he not only was victorious, but he sent now an ever constant abiding comforter to be with us. The Holy Spirit. He gave us his spirit. Moses went up into the mountain, spent time with God, came down and gave us the law. Jesus came down from heaven to this world, suffered and bled and died, ascended up into heaven, up into the mount, you could say, of God, and sent to us not the law, but the Spirit that might help us to live and walk as we could never do before. Moses sent us a law. Jesus sent us his Spirit. What a marvelous gift. A marvelous gift. I've never, I'll never understand why people want to yoke up with the law. I never understand why people want to say, I'm going to follow the law. Because you can't. Now, I'm not saying you want to live recklessly and sinfully and say, Paul writes it. He knew you was going to ask that. He writes in Romans 6, should we continue in sin? God forbid. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
But the thing is, we're no longer looking at the glory of We're looking at the glory of Jesus because he's given us his spirit. And now we follow his leading who will never lead us to live a life contrary to the law. He'll never lead you to sin. He'll lead you, lead you to live far above it. And the Bible goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Not just administration of death, administration of spirit, which is rather glorious. But he says in verse 9, if the ministration of condemnation be glory. Can I just tell you again that the law of God condemns us? Paul calls it a schoolmaster. It was given to show us that we are in trouble. We've broken his law. It wasn't given so that you might say, I'm going to follow that so I can get to heaven. Can't happen. Can't happen. It was given to show you. It was given to, in many ways, condemn you. It was given as the gavel to drop and say, guilty. Jesus came to say, I'll pay it. Although you be guilty, I'll pay it. And I will give you my spirit to be the earnest of that payment, to be the evidence of that payment, and to help you now to live a changed life. What a glorious gift. And the ministration of condemnation is compared here with the ministration of righteousness. The law condemns us. The spirit gives us the righteousness of God. Do you know what the law does? The law says you and I are broken and rotten to the core. But the spirit of God says, have no fear because Jesus died to give you the righteousness of God. Marvelous. Romans chapter three speaks about this uh, and it's, Put in such a clear way, Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20. Let me read it for you. Romans is just before that book of 1 Corinthians. Romans 3 and verse number 20. Listen to what Paul writes. Paul says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law, by the commandment, shall there no flesh be justified in his sight. I don't know why people get this mixed up with this. I don't know why people get confused with this. You're never made right by keeping the law. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Do you know what happens? The moment you believe. The moment you repent of your sins by the grace of God and look unto Jesus, you are given the righteousness of God and your filthy sin is washed away. It's a marvelous, marvelous transaction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we were looking at 2 Corinthians 3, but in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul says, For he hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In him. Isn't that a marvelous thought? Jesus took your sin, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 9. Maybe you'd like to turn there, just listen. Paul says, and to be found in him, that was his desire, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God. By faith. Would you look here for a moment? You are made right with God through faith. Not by your obedience to the law. By faith. By faith. 
And one last, every once in, every once in a while, somebody who, who likes to follow Peter. Sometimes people get confused and they think that Peter is the chap to follow. Jesus is the one to follow. Remember Paul said, some, some said, I am of Paul. Some say I am of, of, uh, of Apollos. Some say I am of Simon. Some say I am of Christ. Only one got it right. I am of Christ. I am of Christ. I, not, some say I am of the Baptist. Some say I'm of the Presbyterians. Some say I am the Methodist. No, no, no. I am of Christ. And that's what we find here. Peter says with his own mouth in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Meaning, I'm no better than you. I've got the same thing you got. The faith, the same faith through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. You and I have no righteousness. Did you know that? You don't have any righteousness until you're born again. Then you have the righteousness of God. You have no righteousness until you are saved. In fact, the Bible says before you are born again, just in case you might think, I'm a good person. Who do you think you are? The Bible says before you are converted, all of your so-called righteousness are as filthy rags. Did you know that? But the moment you're born again, the moment you realize Jesus died for me. And the moment, the ministration of the spirit, when Jesus sends his spirit to live inside of you, then you have been given the righteous account of God. That is a marvelous thought. Marvelous. It's his imputed righteousness. Not mine. I didn't earn it. It's his. Over and over in the New Testament, we read about it. Romans chapter 1 speaks about the righteousness of God. His righteousness. So today I wonder, are you trying? Are you trying to find that glow and that shine and that glimmer and that glory by being a good boy and keeping the law? Well, I hope you try to be a good boy or a good girl. But you'll never find that glory until you learn to walk under the leading and inspiration of God's Spirit. Never. Never. You can study and memorize as much as you want to, but until the Spirit of God is combined with your study and memorization, it's dead. Because the letter itself killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Paul writes so much about this. And I don't want to be another dead man who preaches a dead sermon to dead people. Now, you might be worried about me being a dead man, and I hope that's good. Thank you. Pray for me. But you better worry about yourself being a dead listener. Martin Lloyd-Jones said one time, the great problem of Christianity in this world is not so much uh, bad preachers, that's part of it, but bad listeners. Bad listeners. Oh, I would agree wholeheartedly. There's a great problem, a great dearth of preaching, of good sound Bible, solid Bible, doctrinal preaching. I, I believe there's a great dearth in the land of that, but there's also a great dearth of good listening. So let us not, neither one of us, myself nor you, be guilty of being dead. And that'll only be possible through the spirit of the living God and his word. Get that combination. Get that right. Because it's the spirit that leads us into all truth. It's the spirit that enlightens our understanding. Open thou mine eyes, the psalmist prayed, that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. You've got to have both. You've got to have both. Moses shined with such glory 
because he was in the presence of God and he had the word of God. If you and I are going to shine with such glory today, it'll only be because you have spent time in the presence of God and you carry in your hand the eternal, unwritten, infallible, written word of God. That's where you'll get it. Don't stray from this. It would do you, it would do you well to keep a Bible in your hand just in case you'd be tempted to stray from it. It would do you well to get some calluses on your knees so you know that your sufficiency is not of yourselves, but it is of him. Now, some of you, look here, have begun to drift. Some of you have begun to slip. And let me tell you where you've begun to slip. Do you know where it is? In the prayer closet. You've begun to drift because you spent less time on that mountain. And do you know, just as Moses couldn't see his shining face, he probably couldn't see, therefore, when it began to dim down. In fact, many people believe when Paul wrote in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the reason he put the veil on was so that the people wouldn't be able to watch that shine begin to die down. Some of you have begun to lose your shine, and you don't even realize it. But others can see it. Others can see that you once shined so brightly for Jesus. And it was a clear evidence that you had been in his presence. But now that shine is gone. Something's missing. If you want it back, get alone with him. Get alone with him and hold tightly to that book. Let's pray together and we'll sing our final hymn. Father, we pray that we might be those who search the scriptures daily, who confess our insufficiency and acknowledge that our sufficiency is of thee. May we be those who study the scriptures, but spend much time in prayer, neglecting neither one, but investing in both. Oh Lord, give us this shine so that when we speak to people about thy word, and about thy son, the glory of Jesus, that people would have no doubt that what we say is true because they can see so clearly there's something different about us, something shining about us that gives credence to what we say. Help us, Lord. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Restore unto us the shine of our salvation. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake.